0: ARGUMENT IN SMITH AGAINST THE CITY OF JACKSON, MR. GOLDSTEIN.
1: JUSTICE STEVENS, AND MAY IT PLEASE THE COURT, PETITIONERS SUBMIT THAT THE AGE DISCRIMINATION IN EMPLOYMENT ACT PROHIBITS AN EMPLOYMENT PRACTICE THAT HAS A SIGNIFICANT DISPARATE IMPACT ON OLDER WORKERS IF THAT PRACTICE LACKS ANY REASONABLE BUSINESS JUSTIFICATION. The ADEA embodies Congress's determination that age discrimination seriously impedes older Americans' ability to participate fairly in the American workforce. Mr.
0: Goldstein, let me just interrupt you. You say if it lacks the the business justification, but is it not a part of — that is not a part of the plaintiff's primary submission, is it, that it does not show? That's an affirmative defense.
1: Justice Stevens, there is not a clear answer to that question in all candor. It is not before the Court, I will tell you. That the lower courts uniformly in the ADEA disparate impact context apply Justice O'Connor's plurality opinion in Watson and the Ward's Cove rule rather than the post-1991 Civil Rights Act rule. That is uh, a debatable proposition because as your question suggests, in subsection F1 of the statute where this provision comes from, let me just take us to the language, it would probably be most useful. In the blue book, the, the blue petitioner's brief at Page 1 are the relevant provisions. A2, we'll come back to, that's the parallel language to Griggs. The reasonable factor other than age provision is F1. And it says it shall not be unlawful for an em- — this is at the bottom of the page — it shall not be unlawful for an employer to take any action otherwise prohibited — and I'm going to come back and focus on that — under subsection A. Where the differentiation is based on reasonable factors other than age, the fact that it says "otherwise prohibited" seems to suggest that this is setting up an employer defence, as your question indicates. And the court in the, the Western Airlines case in 1986 said that the BFOQ provision, which is in F1 as well, is an affirmative defence. So I'll I think put your
2: finger on exactly what's the part of this case that's bothering me. Read through the language. As you read through the language, disparate impact does seem to be called for, and this particular provision, reasonable factors other than age, seems the defense to that, just as BFOQ is the defense to disparate treatment. And that all seems to work. But you read the definition of reasonable factor other than age to mean business necessity or even Justice O'Connor's opinion, which is pretty tough. It's hard for an employer to make that defense. And while making it hard to make that defense in a case of gender or race discrimination, in fact, works, in my opinion, perfectly well, you start making it hard to make that defense here and you're going to have a nightmare because every effort by any employer to equalize to any degree pay or treatment of his or her employees is going to have a disparate impact in respect to age, because the correlation with age runs into all kinds of things that it doesn't in the other cases. So I can't believe that Congress really would have wanted that. But the reason I can't believe it is because I can't believe the business necessity part of it. And so here I'm faced with a reg which at one and the same time pulls in disparate impact and business necessity, And now I don't know what to do.
1: I can tell you. (laughs) The answer is that you should recognize, as does the Commission, which has delegated rulemaking authority under the Act, that business necessity, which is the term of art that they used in the regulation, and we'll come back to it at page two of the Blue Brief, means different things in different contexts. And so I want to take you to the specific citations where the EEOC has recognized the common-sense principle, we know that more things that are legitimate employer practices correlate with age than they do with race and gender. It is — MS.
3: before you do that, before you deal with the EEOC regulation, this statute doesn't — at least on the page one part you call our attention to — doesn't refer to business necessity. That's in the EEOC regulation. If I were just reading this statute code, I'd say, ah, yeah, that looks like an affirmative defense to me. But reasonable factor seems like something quite different than necessity. It isn't necessary for the business to do this, but it's reasonable. And if that's then the business necessity, it seems to me, at least arguably, an improper construction of this Act that the EEOC got it wrong when it referred to business necessity. They were thinking of Griggs and Title VII, but this statute says reasonable factors.
1: Yes. Our position relies only on the statute. We embrace the text of the statute. F-1 says that the employer's conduct merely has to be reasonable. We agree with that. The point I would then take you to is that in, if the Court were interested in the regulation, we don't think it's necessary to get to the regulation, but if it were, the EEOC has said that it too recognizes that the phrase business necessity in the context of the Age Act does not mean essential to the business. Let me tell you why it used the language it did, business necessity, in the regulation, just to clear it up. And that is, when this Court first used the words business necessity in Griggs, and then subsequently in Ward's Cove, it didn't have all the connotations that it does now as being quite a high employer burden. If I could just read you two things. From Griggs, Griggs said, the touchstone is business necessity. If the employment practice cannot be shown to be related to job performance, the practice is prohibited. Simply required, related to job performance. That's the backdrop on which the EEOC used the word.
3: I'm not sure you're right about that, Mr. Goldstein, because if you think of what it was, it was a — and paper test, and it was a high school diploma. Now, an employer might well think, I want to upgrade my workforce. I want this to be a real classy workforce, so I'm going to require a high school diploma. It isn't necessary, but why is it unreasonable for me to do that? So I I don't — I think Griggs spoke about rules that were built in headwinds because a large part of the population didn't have the opportunity to get high school diplomas. It doesn't exist in the age discrimination area. So I, I don't think that uh, Griggs is an example of something that was a loose business necessity rule.
1: My point is only terminological, and that is when the EEOC used those words, it did not do so against a backdrop in which they carried a a connotation that was necessarily very very strict. And it has said several times, and they are quoted in our brief, that the standard — and this is just the bottom line. I think it's a very important bottom line. You
4: don't care about those regs anyway, right?
1: We do care about the regulation. Oh, you do.
4: (laughs) I thought you were saying you could make your case just on the —
1: well, That's we have — We can and — Well, t- maybe
5: you, know. you should, because I'm not so sure that the EEOC interpretation is entitled to Chevron
1: deference. We do believe that it is entitled to Chevron deference because they have delegated rulemaking authority, and there is some suggestion that the because of language — in subsection eight. Was
5: this an actual rule after notice and comment, or is it a, a, an interpretation?
1: It is a post-notice and comment rule. But, but it interprets — doesn't interpret the
0: prohibitory section. Uh, I mean, it, it, it might be understood as simply uh, making an assumption that, say, the Griggs r- rule would be applied in, in this Court.
1: It's conceivable you could read it that way, although the EEOC has specified many times in the quarter century since it enacted the regulation that no, when we — and let me take us to the text to explain why. And that, again, is at page two of the Blue Brief. They said — Uh, and this is the block quote, when an employment practice, including a test, is claimed as a basis for different in treatment of employees or applicants for employment on the grounds that it is a factor other than age, and such practice has an adverse impact on individuals. That's the reference to disparate impact. The regulatory material cite to Griggs. But in all events, I do want to come back to the bottom line. And that is the EEOC recognizes, we recognize that it's easier to prove either a defense or to put the burden on the plaintiff's case. It's a, you have a higher hurdle. Easier,
2: easier is a matter of degree. Yes. And reasonable factor could be interpreted to say what the employer, Look, the employer just doesn't like paying these executives so much money when these new younger janitors make so little. And so he says, I want to pay the new younger janitors more. Okay? There we've got it. Disparate impact. And now you say, what's the business necessity? And frankly, there wasn't one. It's just that I found it sort of bad. All right, so there we are. I've lost my case. Now, that's what is worrying me. And I thought perhaps this reg that seems to say, and lower courts have accepted that I would lose my case, that this reg is outside Congress's the agency's authority for that reason, because Congress couldn't have intended that result.
1: Well, let me take you to the lines of cases that I think might concern you. There were a set of cases before this Court's decision in the Hazen paper that involved two rules, Justice Breyer and I will tell you, that you referred to in the Adams oral argument when this case, this issue came to you before. And so I want to refer to a very specific set of cases. There were a set of cases before 1993 in which there was some correlation, high salary correlated with age. And the courts of appeals, the third, the Second Circuit in the Geller case and the Eighth Circuit in the Leftwich case, treated that as effectively a disparate treatment, disparate treatment case because of the high level of correlation the more recent cases reject that result and we embrace the more recent cases and i want to cite them to you so you could look them up if you wanted the evers case which is two hundred and forty one f third nine hundred and forty eight the williams case which is one hundred and twelve f sub second two hundred and sixty seven and the last one is newport mesa eight hundred and ninety three f sub nine hundred and twenty seven these cases recognize that cost is a perfectly legitimate business justification and they put a single burden on the employer. Now, let me just, just to say, most impact cases aren't cost cases, but I know it's a concern. They say, look, if you want to cut your costs and get rid of your more expensive workforce, we're only going to ask you to do one thing. And that is allow your more senior workers to take a pay cut. They do not say, as did the older cases, that it causes disparate impact and you lose your case. And so we don't — Mr.
5: Goldstein, this this case arises out of a compensation program of the employer. And why is it brought under 4A2 instead of 4A1, which addresses discrimination in compensation?
1: Justice O'Connor, the lower courts unanimously conclude, as does the Commission, that A2, although it does not refer, have the word compensation in it, mm-hmm. does apply to compensation. Um, and but
5: why, in light of
1: 4A1? Because they understand 4A, and let me take you everyone to the text, just so we can all be literally on the same page. And that is going to be in the red brief at page 17A, is 623A. And it's the first block quote at the top of page uh, 17A of the red brief. They understand that 623A1 refers to actions against individuals, whereas 623A2 refers to actions against group, group policy versus individual action. And they do that because of the introductory language to A1 and A2, to fail or refuse to hire or discharge any individual, whereas A2 refers to to limit, segregate, or classify his employees.
0: May I ask the question at this point, going really back to the question I asked you at the outset of the argument? If I thought seniority or years of service was a reasonable factor other than age, and if I thought this particular compensation program was based on years of service rather than age, can I look at the reasonable factor other than age in deciding whether your complaint states a cause of action?
1: Yes paper established that that is but not If I tr- do
0: look at it and if I do come to the conclusion I've suggested, would I not have to dismiss your complaint?
1: I may misunderstand the hypothetical, Justice Stevens. I-
0: hypothetical, and I think it may be the case that you have a compensation program which uses years of service as a basis for classifying employees, which has a disparate impact on older workers, but that does also, it is relies squarely on a reasonable factor other than age if you will call years of service such a factor.
1: Yes, that's perfectly legitimate. That, that as I understand the hypothetical, this is the kind of case. understand, as, understand that to, the to the be this outlet. case? No, it would not. Because the rationale given by the employer here. Let me take us to the facts and then the explanation that's given by the employer. What happened here is they gave all of the line police officers much bigger raises than they gave to the more senior officers. That uh, and the difference in pay between protected persons under the ADA and non-protected persons was four standard deviations, uh, one in 10,000, chance, statisticians will tell you. And they said... No, but the
0: basis for differentiation was years of service, was it not?
1: The basis for differentiation was years of service, but the question is, in the, is it a reasonable choice by the employer in this context? And the reason is... And well, so i think
0: in the abstract, why wouldn't that always be a, a reasonable factor other than age?
1: I apologize. I, and so I think I answered your hypothetical too broadly, and that is it depends. In the great majority of cases, employers certainly can say, I want to give a class of employees more money. But perfectly sensible. Congress didn't intend to block that. But the question is, is this outside the usual set of cases? And the City's explanation what, for this policy, which was to give the lion cops more money, but not the rest of the cops, who happen to all be over 40, was that they wanted to bring the salary up to a, re- a regional average. And so we asked the question, does this accomplish that in a reasonable way? And it does not, because they left out huge categories of employees.
0: But the fact, if I understand it, it wasn't because they were line officers. It was rather because they had a lesser years of service than the more senior
1: officers. No, that is not the facts here. That's right. They, they did not say, we are going to give Pay raises to the people who have lesser years of service because we're concerned about their pay. To the contrary, let me take you to one piece of the record that I think will be helpful. Although again, the case is <laughs> presents the legal question, the lower court on remand can resolve the case. Uh, but at page 15 of the joint appendix, there is the pay plan itself, and the first sentence is that uh, that explains the purpose. The the city wanted to provide com- a compensation plan that will attract and retain qualified people. And then it says, to all employees, regardless of age. They purported to be giving the same treatment to everyone, regardless of I don't think the
0: statement of purpose tells me what the, what, the, what the criterion for the different treatment was. I still think it was years
1: of service. Justice Stevens, I, I just think that mis, it misunderstands the facts as I know them in this particular case. What was case. the criterion? The criterion was that they took the — they had different kinds of officers. They had — police, line police officers, master sergeants, all the way on up through the system.
0: So in those, the the criterion was the kind of rank they had before. Yes. Why isn't that a reasonable factor other than age?
1: The question is not whether that, because that's not having those criterion is perfectly reasonable. The question is, is it reasonable, and this would be resolved on remand, to give raises to only one of those categories when your explanation is that you were trying to give raises to bring everyone up to a regional average? And so, Justice Stevens, but I though, think — as you
0: say, the, the, the question isn't whether they used a reasonable factor other than age. Your question is whether the use of those factors was overall reasonable. And yes, there are two things. At the th- rewriting of the
1: statute. Oh, I, I don't think so, Justice Stevens. It's the same question that we ask in Title VII, and that is, was it a a, a — there's a higher bar there, but were you pursuing a, a legitimate goal, and did you — did you pursue it in a reasonable way? That's why a Title VII plaintiff, and this has, and I do want to come back. Title VII doesn't have this language in it. That's absolutely right. But th- it's not language here that would detract from that structure of the, of the Title VII inquiry. All the lower courts, for example, agree that it follows, as I said, follows the pre-
2: here, here you're saying you're not attacking reasonable factor other than age. It has to be based on reasonable factor other than age. And I take it here you're saying it's not based on what they advance as reasonable factor.
1: Yes. give that right? Yes. They give an explanation. But if I, I say my explanation
2: for why I pay the newer people more is really I like to have that atmosphere. We make less money in my business, but it's more democratic. And people are happier, even though no one will invest in my company. Uh, but still, I'd like a commune, alright? That's how I want to do it. Now, that's not totally idiotic, it's plausible. So, uh, I just win, right? No, you You're...
1: would lose a treatment case.
2: Ah, I lose a treatment case. No, no, I'm not, I'm just, it's, I'm not paying the younger workers more, I'm paying the newer workers more. Alright? They happen to be much the same category, but I I, I don't want to. It. I, I, it's not age, or you know I pay the lower paid workers more. How's that? The pay the lower paid workers more? Yeah, I pay the lower paid workers more. I want to bring them up to the executives. I I, I like it. It's more democratic, and uh, it makes a happier uh, group. And and so now, do I win or lose?
1: You in all likelihood win in that hypothetical. You I win. I don't have to
2: say any more than that.
1: No. But let me tell you, it's still a very important statute because, uh, for the reason that I framed before, and that is most cases that are ADA, disparate impact cases, are not cost cases. There are other tests, application procedures, strength tests, and the like. That's what the EEOC believes is still very essential. So while we don't impose a big burden on employers in the cost context for the reasons that you and Justice Stevens have been exploring, that doesn't mean our position is somehow worthless the eeoc has said that the disparate impact plays a quote-unquote vital role under the adea and that the respondents position would greatly weaken the statute
3: there there haven't been a whole lot of cases under um, the impact theory as applied to age and you just said you're not talking about the cost category but that did you mentioned physical fitness and there was a case Smith against Des Moines involved that, but if it was found that the, job, the phys- physical fitness test was job-related. Have there been neutral rules with a disparate impact that you can give us as examples? You know, when you're talking about race and sex, the examples come to mind much more readily than yes. in the age category.
1: Yes, I can. I'll give you two sets of examples. The first is the examples identified by the Solicitor General in his SERP petition defending the EEOC's position in the Francis W. Parker case uh, in 1994. The EEOC pursued cases, and they're cited in the SERP petition, involving rules that, prohibit re- that require recent college graduates to get a job, that uh, forbid hiring someone who worked previously for a higher salary, then they would be getting in the new job, in the new job. And that laid off people who would be eligible to retire soon. So those are the examples the Solicitor General gave. I will give you two other examples. One is Kla- a case called. Kla-
4: these are examples of violations be- or things that are okay?
1: Violations, I apologize. The EEOC filed suit because of these violations of the Act.
4: Why isn't it a reasonable factor other than age that uh, I don't want to hire somebody who is going to retire a year after I hire him. Because it's not... Gee, that seems to me terribly reasonable. The... I don't care how old he is. I don't want anybody who's going to retire the year after I hire him. I don't want to have to go through this
1: this whole process again. The view of the commission, it's one I share, but a particular court might not, is that that is not a good, a a reasonable workplace judgment. One one could disagree with it. But that those employees will be very valuable. And it's not that they will retire, I should make clear. It's that they're eligible to retire. It, It may well be a different case if you could say, I asked the person, they said they're leaving in a year. The rule challenge there was mere eligibility to retire. And they did give the other examples. I didn't finish with the court cases. They are Klein, which is 807 F-sub, 1517, which is a hiring test, I think by the FAA in that case, that, managed, that happened to exclude all of the uh, people, I think, over the age of 55. And there are other cases that are in the line of cases that I was discussing with Justice Breyer in which the employer doesn't say, doesn't give the person who gets the higher pay the option of taking a pay cut before being fired. So the statute, both in the non-cost context and the cost context, has very important applications. I did want to return to your correct premise, however, Justice Ginsburg. You said there aren't many cases. I think it's important to recognize that the the. Important, legitimate cases by and large are conciliated by the EEOC. Remember, it goes through an administrative process first. The EEOC found a violation here, gave us a right to sue letter. The the city just declined to settle with us. Um, There have been, and I have checked, there have been 74 disparate impact cases in the history of the statute that are reported in the federal courts. And I think that is a good answer to the idea of the respondents that this will impose a huge burden on employers, the idea that there will be a massive amount of litigation. Remember-
5: Well, once we- if we were to say it's covered, don't you think that number would expand?
1: It's possible it would expand some, but I do think we're right to say not much Well, it's
2: not the number of cases either. I mean, you could have- it wouldn't take much to have a single case that has a rule on it, say, that makes it very difficult for an employer to do things of type X or type Y. And that would have enormous impact, even though you'd say, well, it was just one
1: case. Well, there are two fears I think the respondents have articulated, neither of which are borne out by actual experience. Because, Justice O'Connor, the EEOC has recognized these claims for a quarter century. Until 1993, every single circuit agreed with us. And right now, three circuits agree with us. So I, there is a large body of experience that suggests that, and that's where those 74 cases come from. So Justice Breyer, they have two concerns. One is the mere notion of the possibility of liability will, and the prospect of how expensive litigation would be, would be uh, d- deterring valuable employment practices. That's not borne out by experience. Your point is, well, what if the liability threshold is too high? And experience suggests, and the rules endorsed by the Commission and the lower courts, are that the liability threshold is not too high. I did also want to say that it is the liability threshold that is the key for um, deciding uh, how to accommodate the respondents' concerns. Justice O'Connor's Watson plurality opinion explains that the evidentiary standards that apply in these disparate impact cases should serve as adequate safeguards. The precise same argument was made by the business community in Watson, saying, look, We're going to have to adopt quotas. This will be entirely unmanageable. Before I sit down and reserve the remainder of my time, I did want to say, we have a really good case to refer back to the last argument. And that's Griggs, which is about the exact same statutory text. And then we have a line, a wall that is uninterrupted of this Court's authority. Six straight decisions say when the statute, Title VII says something and the ADA says the same thing, they have the parallel construction. And in our view, the respondents' arguments aren't good enough to overcome the double hurdle of stare decisis and Chevron deference. If I could reserve the remainder of my time.
6: Mr. Nager. Thank you, Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. If I may, I'd like to go straight uh, to the question as to why mere statistical correlations with age don't create a prima facie case of discrimination because of age. This Court, in its Title VII cases, has said that a mere statistical correlation with race or sex can create a prima facie case of discrimination because of race or sex because it's advanced a proposition that there's no inherent correlation between race and sex and ability to perform a job or do a job and as a consequence the court has said that a statistical disparity is a departure from the expected norm thus the statistical disparity creates a suspect situation which could be treated as a prima facie case of discrimination because of age to use the court's term in watson the functional equivalent of intentional discrimination In the age context, the premise doesn't apply. In the age context, as Justice Breyer pointed out in the Florida Power argument, as he's pointed out again today, age is inherently correlated with myriad selection practices. It's painful to say, particularly to uh, a court that's a little bit older than I am, (laughs) but our mental and physical capacities are not constant over our lifetimes. They're different for each one of us, but statistically they change over time and they deteriorate over time. And progress doesn't treat the skills and abilities that we have, uh, with, uh, the same way to people who are at different stages in life. Our education and our technological... Bertie wrote
3: Falstaff when he was 70, late, in his late 70s. It was his greatest creation. Something.
6: Uh, there is uh, no doubt, particularly, uh, in occupations like judging,
3: uh,
6: <laughs> that, uh, experience and wisdom may be something that grow over a lifetime. But as me, we know... Ossard
4: oh, died at about 28, didn't <laughs> he?
3: No, 34. 34, well. Let me, let me
2: ask you this. If, 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 if your argument has force, why haven't we been having Horrible example piled on horrible example since 1981, when the EEOC took the position that it takes.
6: I think the answer to that is as follows: is that uh, Justice Rank, Chief Justice, then Justice Rehnquist, now Chief Justice Rehnquist, wrote a dissent from denial at the time of Geller versus Markham, and my, in my practical experience, and I do defend these cases for a living, uh, that put a tremendous chill on the plane of spar. And there were very few of these cases brought. But contrary to Mr. Goldstein, who doesn't represent employers and help them plan their selection practices, employers made huge changes in the 80s and the early 90s until this Court's decision in Hazen paper. Because employers were scared of these cases. And so employers started managing the numbers. There are a lot of reductions in force in the late 80s, as I'm sure this Court remembers, as, as our nation went through an industrial restructuring. And every one of those reductions in force, I had to sit down with my clients and break up the age of the workforce into bands and see how people were gonna be affected and move numbers. And the irony, of course, is is in doing that, employers adversely impact the very people who are benefited by the disparate impact doctrine under Title VII because the uh, Age Discrimination Act principally favors uh, more senior, older white males. And when you try to manage your numbers, so that you don't adversely impact older white males, what happens is you adversely impact the new entrants to the workforce, who in the last 25 years have been uh, 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 much greater numbers of racial minorities and females. What do
4: you do uh, about uh, the EEOC's uh, regulation? Why isn't, that, why isn't that entitled to Chevrolet efforts?
6: Uh, uh, Let me answer that. First of all, uh, the the answer is, is you only get to Chevron deference if this statute is not subject to uh, construction by this Court. Um, In phase one of Chevron, the first question is, can this Court, looking at the language of the statute and the other legal materials, interpret the statute to have a single, reasonably clear meaning? How can we
4: possibly say that it's not ambiguous when we
6: have, in another context, interpreted the identical language to permit just the way this Court did last term in the General Dynamics case, which I realize you dissented on this point, uh, Justice Scalia. But just last term in the General Dynamics uh, case, this Court held that the phrase because of age is idiomatically and contextually different than the phrase because of race or sex. And my point to Justice Breyer is, is that the phrase because of age cannot properly be construed to be satisfied by a mere statistical correlation. In that, ter-
0: that case, we were screwing the word age, and age definitely has a different meaning from sex or, or race.
6: I'm not saying that the, the general dynamics case uh, disposes of this case, Justice Stevens. I'm simply pointing out that, as Justice Souter's opinion for the court last term uh, uh, held, that uh, similar language and similar statutes can have different meaning and not be
3: ambiguous. But not whole text, not I don't remember whether it was one, or two, 1 and 2 or A and B, but this is not a word age. It's it's lines and lines. And to, and to say, oh, in Griggs we held that the Title seven language, this language means you can have a disparate impact theory. But in age we're going to read those very same words to, to prohibit. In one sense, you, you, one you read to say these words permit disparate impact. And then you read the same words that say, these words prohibit.
6: No, that, that's impact. not quite right, Justice Ginsburg. What we're saying is, is that the natural meaning of the phrase because of, either in Title VII or in the Age Act, is a natural, more conventional reference to intent that, nonetheless, the Court, because of the objectives of Title VII and because statistical correlations could equal a functional equivalent of intentional discrimination, construed Title VII to go beyond intent-based claims to encompass uh, disparate impact claims. Our point to the Court today is, is that neither of those two critical premises apply, that a mere correlation with age does not, in the context of age, equal a prima facie case of If data. that's so,
4: Congress shouldn't have copied the language of Title seven. It isn't a matter of it just accidentally comes out to, to be sounding the same, as though, you know, Two monkeys did it on a typewriter or something. They copied.
6: They copied Title Seven. Well, they copied it before Griggs was decided. Indeed, before any agency of government, before any court in this country, and before any academic in this country had floated it's a fair the concept. conclusion
4: that they meant the two to mean the same thing. Whether it was before Griggs or after Griggs, they copied the language. It seems to me they wanted the two to mean
6: the same. I, I d- think that that's wrong. justice or, or it is
4: arguably so. In which case, you come back to my question. Why isn't the the
6: EEOC's uh, resolution of that ambiguity conclusive? Well, uh, let me answer that question directly and then come back and argue with you about your premise. Uh, If you turn to the uh, uh, appendix, and on the red brief, page uh, 56A is the regulation. And it is, as Justice Kennedy pointed out, it is not an interpretation of the prohibition of the statute. It is an interpretation of the reasonable factor other than age provision. Uh, and as an initial point, I'd submit to uh, Justice Scalia that it's one thing to defer to an agency's interpretation of the provision that you're being asked to construe in resolving what the meaning of the provision you're being asked to construe is. It's another thing to defer... Uh, to their interpretation of a distinct provision, which isn't a prohibition at all. Now, let, me, let me move on and let's read what it says. Though, what it says is, uh, is the following: It's interpreting a phrase that says is based on a reasonable factor other than age, which Mr. Goldstein has conceded in his brief, and the petitioners in the Florida Power case also conceded, is necessarily a reference to intentionality. But there's not a word in this regulation about employer intentions. Quite the contrary, and the reason why I asked you to turn to page 56A of our brief, rather than the quotation of the regulation in Mr. Goldstein's brief, is because there is an additional sentence in the regulation that Mr. Goldstein did not print in his brief, and that is that the EEOC said where tests are involved. Where, where you read uh, page 56A of the red brief. Uh, I'm sorry, It's uh, section D. Is D, as in David. What the ESC said is that the reasonable factors other than age provision is not an intent-based provision. It's a business necessity provision. They did it saying it means the same thing as it, as it means in Title VII because their whole purpose here was to conform the Age Act to Title VII. And they said you have to comply, or tests are involved, with the uniform guidelines on employee selection that they jointly promulgated with the Department of Labor, the Justice Department, and the uh, Civil uh, Service Branch, whose name is escaping me right Nigger,
0: now. I'm lost. What, what part of 56A are you referring to? D? Uh, D,
6: on page 56A. I'm sorry? Does it say what you just said? It's a test which are asserted, the last sentence. Tests which are asserted as reasonable factors other than age will be scrutinized in accordance with the standards set forth at Part 1607 of this title. At part 1607 of this title is the Uniform Guidelines on Employee Selection.
2: Well, that's true, but they they did promulgate this guideline as far as I looked it up. At that time, they said, look, it's going to be disparate impact, and they cited Griggs. And people put comments, which I haven't read yet, but I imagine the comments went to disparate impact. And then when they rewrote it in this form, they have a little paragraph of explanation, which makes pretty clear it's meant to be disparate impact.
6: I have no doubt that they were assuming that this Court's decision in Griggs, because this is what they said in their comments, this Court's decision in Griggs required disparate impact uh, analysis well alright, but the, I mean they had,
2: they, everybody knew what they were driving at at the time they promulgated this, so it seemed to me that if, if, if we're not governed by the reg, it must be because the reg is outside the statutory authority. And it might be outside the statutory authority if in fact it embodies too tough a test.
6: It's it's outside the the statutory authority for two reasons. But
2: now we've heard that it doesn't embody that much of a tough test. And, you know, the EEOC isn't here to tell us what, in fact, it thinks.
6: Mr. Goldstein cited a bunch of EEOC briefs in his brief. And you'll notice he didn't quote a single part of, of, of those EEOC briefs which say that the standard under the Age Act is less and the standard under the Age Act. what he cites to is a footnote in his opening brief where he quotes one sentence from an EEOC brief where an EEOC appellate lawyer uh, uh, said it is, is likely that an employer will be able to prevail more often. The EOC never said, and, and I, I litigate against them, I can tell you, the only thing that they would hate more, less but hate a lot than you ruling in our favor that there's no disparate impact claims at all is that Mr. Goldstein has represented what their version of the defense is, because that's not the government's position. All
2: right, so we don't know what the government's position is? They're not here. So suppose I think, one, the language is against you, the language of the statute. I do think it's against you. Two, the EEOC reg does foresee a disparate impact test. Three, the practicalities are absolutely with you, and that has to go with the scope of the statute. And four, it might be possible for the EEOC to write a reg that deals with the problems you are worried about while uh, advancing a disparate impact test. Suppose I think all those things,
6: Wh- which, which one are at I- least
2: consistent. Well, what would I do with this case?
6: Uh, <laughs> That's I- my problem. Okay, well, I, I would submit that you should re. Where the government hasn't
2: appeared and told us what they want to do or what they think should be done, Seth. So. I,
6: I should. I would submit, Justice Breyer, that you should re-examine your premise that the language of the ajac Act, both in section 4A by itself and construed in light of 4F and the legislative history and purposes of the statute, encompass disparate impact claims.
4: Maybe the EEOC regulation was not so much an interpretation of the statute as an interpretation of Griggs. Oh, I think that. I mean, maybe this provision represents the judgment of the agency that Griggs applies to this other statute. In, and I'm not sure that uh, we owe Chevron deference to that determination.
6: Well, I, I don't think you did, although I don't even think, frankly, from what I've read, is they made the judgment, they made the assumption. <laughs>
1: yeah, well... M- m- Mr. Mr. Nagel, will you go to another one
2: of Justice uh, Breyer's premises? Uh, he says, following the practicalities With You, which you're certainly going to accept, he says, I think the EEOC
6: can deal with some of these practical problems. Well, Do you okay. think so? Why not? Great question. And the answer is no, they can't. And the reason give, is. Give me some examples. The, the reason is, is because if you, lo- if you lower the prima facie case so that it's meaningless, so that it means that all a plaintiff has to do is find a selection practice, because it's always going to correlate with age. It means you've shifted the burden to an employer in every case to uh, establish that it's, its practice meets whatever standard you're hypothesizing the EEOC might come up with later, Justice Breyer. Meanwhile, the world has to go on, and what my clients will do is as follows. They will say, well, you know, we're not going to wait to see if, if this new practice we're going to consider is going to stand the test of time in court and under the EEOC's yet-to-be-articulated regulation. We're going to stick with the tried and true. We're not going to innovate at all. And if we're going to innovate, we're going to massage the numbers while we do it. The employers
2: are a fairly easy burden to meet. And and to give you a fairly easy burden is consistent with the idea of trying to get employers to think about the problem. An employer who uses a different uh, uh, factor, which is correlated with age, but it's, act, it's an unreasonable thing to do, or it isn't the real basis, hasn't thought about the harm that he's working. As so as we as could the give the you an easy <laughs> burden and
6: still accomplish <laughs> the objective. I, I, I don't want to resist the easy burden. <laughs> But I do want to tell you, as Justice Scalia pointed out in the Florida Power argument, uh, my clients do think about these things. Because, if, you know, if they adopt an unreasonable practice that has an adverse statistical effect, and they think they're likely to get sued about it, they actually do have to worry about it because they're, these cases are tried to juries and they have to have a reasonable explanation for what they're practicing because they get tried to juries as disparate treatment cases. Well, our point is not that statistics are not admissible, they are. Our point is, is that they're not sufficient by themselves to create a prima facie case of because of age as it would be in a Title VII case, where we wouldn't expect to see the statistical disparity. So it's fair to say that there's a reasonable adverse inference to be drawn from the existence of the disparity itself. That is the premise articulated by this Court as to why the disparate impact doctrine can, can, uh, the prima facie case aspect of it, equals uh, a prima facie case of discrimination because of race or sex. That is not true here. Now, it is also the case that when this court adopted the disparate impact doctrine, it said it placed an enormous weight on the objectives of Title VII's prohibitions, which it construed to be, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, eliminating these built-in headwinds. Well, when the Secretary of Labor proposed the Age Discrimination Act, he gave a report to Congress and he said, age discrimination is different than race and sex discrimination. It is not based on animus. It is is not dealing with a group of individuals who have suffered cumulative disabilities over their lifetime because of historic discrimination. He said "It's a, the problem of age discrimination is the problem of overgeneralization. By but anybody. he gave
3: the very same example that was Griggs. He gave the example of the high school diploma because he thought that people of a certain age, when there wasn't such general education as there is today, might not have a high school diploma to a much higher extent than the people who came, the generation who came after.
6: But his solution was not a disparate impact doctrine. His solution was, was directly.
3: You said his solution was you're going to have training and manuals, and, but that's not I, I, altogether clear.
6: Well, take a look at the statute, Justice Ginsburg. Please look at page uh, uh, 15A and, uh, and 16A in the red brief. And if you look at section 621B, it's at the bottom of page 15A of the red brief, Congress said what the purposes of the age discrimination act were. And it had three, but it's only addressed one through the prohibition. The second one was to prohibit arbitrary age discrimination in employment. The other two were to promote employment of older persons based on ability and to help employers and workers find ways of meeting problems arising from the impact of age on employment. And if you turn the page, and look at Section 622A1, the very first thing Congress mandates that the Secretary shall do to address its other two purposes, to undertake research and promote research with a view to reducing barriers to the employment of older persons and the promotion of measures for using their skills. What the Secretary of Labor's report goes on at length about is it identifies all kinds of factors, neutral and non-neutral
3: but it doesn't say there that that is to implement the first one that that only the second one um, to prohibit arbitrary age discrimination
6: it, it does what it, it, it you're right it doesn't say the following it doesn't say and we don't want disparate impact because in 1967 the the concept of disparate impact as a legal theory was unknown uh, to Congress, to the courts, and to the administrative agencies. But what the Secretary of Labor did do in his report, is, after identifying all of the problems that adversely affect older workers, he says, I recommend a two-pronged approach. One prong is prohibitory. It's coercive. You shall not uh, will prohibit arbitrary age discrimination in employment, which the Secretary explained to Congress in this court last term, Set itself means a, is a, is is the use of age as a decision-making criteria. He said separately. We should have a series of programs that seek to enlarge the abilities of older workers, that seek to educate employers about the abilities of older workers through non-coercive programs. And so what this statute does, and this Court has said it in several of its cases, this statute was based upon the Secretary of Labor's report. The Secretary wrote the bill, and although Congress amended it in other ways, it didn't amend any of these provisions, that this statute took a more nuanced approach to deal with a distinctly different problem. And the problem- Here, at the end of his report, uh, Secretary
0: Wirtz said that the purpose to eliminate discrimination in the employment of older workers would be necessary not only to deal with overt acts of discrimination, but also to adjust those present employment practices which quite unintentionally lead to age limits in hiring. Now, your point, is I understand it, yes, that was one of his purposes, but he meant that one to be accomplished with ERISA and other things like that.
6: Well, the quote that you just gave says that there are express uses of age and there are non-age reasons that lead to the use of express limits of age. For example, the uh, hypothetical that Justice Scalia gave with Mr. Goldstein saying, well, I wouldn't want to hire someone who tells me they're going to retire a year from now. But if he said, I'm not going to hire you uh, because you're 64, because I know you're going to, uh, people retire at 65 mostly, that would be the same kind of non-age-based motive that nevertheless used age as a decision making criteria that's what that quote uh, is referring to if you if you, uh the, the, second quote, the half, reference
0: to employment practices which quite unintentionally lead to age limits in hiring i see what you're saying right
6: and and and, and the the point here is this was thought out it wasn't thought out as disparate treatment versus disparate impact because the concepts didn't exist at the time but it was thought out as arbitrary age discrimination versus other factors that adversely bear on older workers. The prohibitions went to arbitrary age discrimination and didn't go to uh, the uh, adverse impacts. It was the, the non-course of measures that went to the adverse impacts. Let me go also uh, You
2: know How does that work? Because the, the particular language, it shall be unlawful for an employer to classify his employees in any way that would adversely affect an individual's status, his status, it says, as an employee because of such individual's age. Now, that sounds as if it's driving right at disparate impact. It's, 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 it's unlawful to classify an employee in any way that would adversely affect him uh, because of his age. That's what it says. And then you turn to the defense and says, but there's the defense where the differentiation I.e. the classification is based on reasonable factors other than age. And therefore it would sound as if it says, look at the factor and ask is the factor reasonable. If so, the employer wins, if it's really based on that factor. Two points? Yeah.
6: One is How do we get out of that language? Okay. Well, we, we love the language. We don't have to get out of it. It says because of age. That's a reference—a traditional, conventional. No, no but it, reference. it says it says that would adversely affect. Right, the, the first, the, before the comma, is the statement both of the action of the employer and the injury that it has to cause in order for a uh, claim to exist. And then there's another requirement. The requirement is is that the action and the. Uh, uh, the, effect of the injury that's affected by it be because of age. Yeah. That is a conventional reference to intent. And the confirmation that it's a reference...
2: Oh, no, it's not intent, because to read it as part of classifying, which you'd have to do to get it because of intent, you'd have to say to classify his employees because of such individual's age. And that's a little tough, because well, you y- talk y- about y- employees, and then you go to such individual.
6: It, 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 the phrase because of age modifies all of the words that precede the comma that separates the two.
2: Segregate
4: uh, or classify. You want to read it all the way up back to segregate or classify. Well, I, I think it does um, it'd modify be, the verb, but... Be good if you had a comma after employees. I, I, I might go along with you. If there was a comma after, to limit, segregate, or classify his employees, comma. In any way which would or tend to deprive any division of opportunities or otherwise affect his status as an employee, comma. Because of such individuals, they the way back to before the comma. I can see that, but without the comma, well, I, that's, that's an awful travel
6: back
2: to limit, segregator.
4: Well, I, th- I
6: think that's the grammatically correct way to read it. But e- even if it was just modifying the adversely effect, it, it would still be because the of age. Way,
2: wait, the natural way is to read it as modifying to deprive right. or otherwise adversely affect. Exactly. That's the natural way to read it. It is. Now,
6: Once still, suppose
2: we read it that way, then even, what you say?
6: If you still, if, even if you read it that way, it still says comma because of age, And the because of age is a reference to intent. And the confirmation of that, Justice Breyer, is the defense that you keep pointing to. Because as Mr. Goldstein conceded in his brief, and as you pointed out in your questioning, it says, is based on. That is also a reference to intent. This statute is preoccupied with intent. What section 4F was about, was identifying the situations in which age would be used but it nonetheless wouldn't even be arbitrary. Indeed I,
4: and I guess what supports that reading is that intent uh um, intent to discriminate on in hiring. The intentional discrimination because of age in hiring is covered by two rather than one, isn't it? Well, uh,
6: I think mean, I mean if if if
4: if you have a rule if you have a rule that you won't hire any employee I mean, we we were talking earlier about the the reason uh, two reads employees in the plural, and one reads refuse to hire or discharge any individual. So if you have any intentional discrimination that is against a class, it comes under two rather than one. I had never thought of considering that. Well, I thought thought that's what what, uh, uh, counsel for the petitioner was telling us.
6: Yeah, well, if he did, he's only strengthened our case. <laughs> yeah. I, I, what I want to say to the court is is that both of those provisions are modified by the phrase because of age. This court in Hazen paper construed the because of language in 4A1 as a reference to intent and said statistical correlations with age are not sufficient to uh, uh, establish because of age within the meaning of Section 4A1. And the presumption of uniform usage, we're entitled to point to it as well, <laughs> Uh, that the presumption of uniform usage would be that the phrase because of age in Section 4A2 is also not satisfied by a mere statistical correlation uh, with age. And the reason why Title VII is different than the Age Act, I keep coming back to this because this is so critical to Justice Breyer, is that the premise of the Court's statistical cases under Title VII is that it's, it presumes that there's no inherent difference in ability between the races and the genders, whereas you know and I know that there is a difference in uh, an inherent correlation between abilities and skills between people of different ages statistically. And so that whereas in the, in the race and sex context, a statistical disparity by itself points out that there's something suspect, and so would justify putting the employer to the burden on those occasions which would happen. And by definition, I think you and I both think, Justice Breyer, that it's not all that often that you're going to have these statistical disparities in the race and sex context. In the age context, they happen all the time. So it, 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 it's, it, th- th- there's no basis for suggesting that a statistical correlation by itself creates something suspect and it would rob the notion of a prima facie case of any meaning to say that, 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 that a statistical correlation with age, which we expect to see all the time, would establish a prima facie wrong. And, of course, the Secretary of Labor wrote a report telling Congress that race and sex were different than age for this very reason. But in now, your
0: view, is that based on reasonable factors other than age, strictly an affirmative defense?
6: I, I think that it, it, is, it was intended to address mixed motive cases. That's why it was added. Uh, I think it is an indicia. Of the fact that this statute is uh, concerned with intent in its prohibitions only, I'm not saying it's conclusive of that, but I'm saying it's another indicia. That if you look at all of section 4f, it's about the instances in which age is being but used. Is
5: it an affirmative
6: defense? Uh, I, I don't think that it is. Um, and I. I, I, I
0: well, did you challenge the sufficiency of this complaint on the ground that it did not allege that the uh, the. Uh, program was not based on it uh, was based on factors that
6: were unreasonable uh, i i be- i didn't handle the case in the trial court but i believe that the, uh, our our client uh denied all of the allegations in the complaint and affirmatively uh said that this was a, uh, its salary program was a reasonable factor other than age yes and certainly in the courts below the uh, reasonable I'm fact- trying to
0: think through is whether that issue is one that can be resolved on the pleadings or does it always require a trial
6: well, I think it, it, the question of whether or not the reasonable factor other than age provision when read in conjunction with Section a 4A shows that this is an intent-based uh, statute is a pure legal question can be judged on the pleadings. The, que- the question of whether or not a, in a particular fact situation something is a reasonable factor other than age or not uh, I think would be subject to what that proof is. It might be undisputed. On your no
3: reading, I just don't see that there's any function. I mean, if this Barrett impact is out of it, then then what work is there for the reasonable factor other than age to do?
6: It was added in as a safe harbor to address mixed motive cases. There was a concern at the time that since employers had been using age as the decision-making factor, that they would continue to think about it. And the question was raised, well, would that mean that the mere fact they thought of it, even though they had a non-discriminatory reason, mean that they still violated the act? And the Secretary said, no, we've put in this reasonable factor other than age uh, provision to make it clear. It was simply a safe harbor.
0: Thank you, Mr. Najer. I think you've answered the question. Mr. Goldstein, you have four minutes, and let's make it four and a half.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Justice Stevens. I want to start with our affirmative case, which is one of stare decisis, and then go to what I think is the thing that might concern the court, and that's the practicalities of implementing our rule. Our stare decisis case, I think, is fairly decisive. Uh, The language of Title VII was the model for the ADEA. It runs all the way through the same in subsection A2, This Court construed the text of the statute to give rise to disparate impact liability, and there are six cases of this Court that say when the language is the same, because one was derived from the other, we give them the same meaning. Now, I take it that the respondents have three answers to that. The first is they attempt to rewrite the rationale of Griggs and say Griggs really isn't so much about the text of the statute, it's what Congress was getting after. And this Court in Griggs was principally concerned with the fact that look, in the context of age and sex discrimination, there's no legitimate correlation between uh, an, a disparate impact and a legitimate employer policy. That is not, in fact, what the rationale of Griggs is. The rationale of Griggs is that it doesn't matter to the employee if you are purposefully discriminated against or accidentally discriminated against. Congress was concerned with the effects of discrimination. And this court reached that conclusion based on the text of the statute. If I could read from Griggs, quote, the objective of Congress in the enactment of Title VII is plain from the language of the statute. That's the same language as in our statute. The thrust of Section 703A2 was to address, quote, the consequences of employment practices, not simply the motivation. This court subsequently reiterated twice that disparate impact comes from the text of the statute, not from the air. Those two cases are quoted at page nine of our reply brief, and they resolve all doubts about commas and because of or anything like that. The court in both Connecticut versus Teal and Justice O'Connor's opinion for the court in Watson tied it directly to the statute. If I could just read the Watson example, again they're quoted in full. In disparate impact cases, quote, the employer's practices may be said to, quote, adversely affect an individual status as an employee because of such individuals, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Now, the second argument they have, and this was the Fifth Circuit's argument, is the RFOA provision exists in the ADEA, not in Title VII. I do not understand how the RFOA provision, if it means anything, it doesn't help us. Again, let me take you back to the text. It's on page one of the blue brief. It's in a few other places, but it's there. It shall not be unlawful for an employer to take any action Otherwise prohibited under subsection A, where the differentiation is based on reasonable factors other than age. The necessary premise of that provision is that something will be otherwise unlawful when it's based on something other than age. It can't be talking about disparate treatment. The only kind of liability that involves factors other than age is impact. And then on top of that, Congress required that the employer's conduct be reasonable. What a dual motive. Uh, because the statute refers to something otherwise unlawful, it can't be talking about Price Waterhouse mixed motive. Price Waterhouse mixed motive cases establish liability; i.e., you're not liable if you had another reason for doing it. But the premise of F one is that it's already otherwise unlawful. This is a defense to that. The third thing that they say is that in Hazen Paper, this court construed the "because of" language in A-1, not to refer to impact, the critical difference is that the A-1 language does not include the, in, the clause that refers to the impact on the employee that Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer talked about with Mr. Nager. They're structured very differently. As to the practicalities, let me just say this has been the rule for a quarter century of the EEOC. It was the rule in every circuit until 1993. It is still the rule in three circuits. The notion that there is a big problem with administering it and that the EEOC can't recognize, as it has in all the examples we cite, that it's easier for an employer to prevail in the ADEA context is not accurate. I also want to just agree with Justice Breyer that an important part of impact liability is just making employers think about it. And that comes from Justice Kennedy's opinion in McKinnon, where he said that disparate impact, quote, acts as a spur or catalyst to cause employers to self-examine and self-evaluate their employer practices to endeavor to eliminate, so far as possible, the last vestiges of discrimination.
0: Thank you, Mr. Goldstein. The case is submitted.
3: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.